Good morning, everyone. Um, hope you all can hear me okay. I am in my back bedroom here, which is where I normally do my uh, day's work, and uh, so it's a little strange to be here going through a uh, sermon instead. I, uh, yeah, it's good to meet with you this morning in this way. I mean, it's better than not meeting at all, right? And I want to thank all of you who have dialed in and are on the phone, and um, each one that's had part already this morning, uh, Rich, for your opening, and Brandon, the story, and also that, that song, which uh, fits well with our message, which is from First Peter. Um, I'm, uh, last time I preached from First Peter, it was uh, the first 21 verses, and this morning I'm going to pick up where we left off at verse 22, and we'll go through chapter 2, verse 12, and the major themes of this passage are um, that God is building a spiritual house out of us and it is so important that we be aligned with the cornerstone and then Peter goes into some different ways in which um, what that should look like as far as our attitudes and our desires and affections and so what I'm going to do is I will read a few verses at a time and make comments on it so when I go through the passage in this way, it would probably be a bit hard to keep track of where I'm at if you don't have the passage open in front of you, so I would encourage you to do that. And um, if, you've, if all you've got handy right now is a phone, you can use the link in the email sent out. That would pull open the exact passage I'm looking at. Anyway, um, yeah, so I'll be making comments as we go, and then at the end uh, I have four main takeaways for us. So I'm going to start reading at verse 22 in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again not of corruptible seed but incorruptible through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So just a few comments on, on these verses. Um, mainly Peter is, is, is pointing out here just... Uh, the huge role that the Word of God, written or spoken, has in the life of a Christian. It leads to new birth. He says, born again through the Word. It brings about purification. And verse 22 says, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. It gives Christians something to stake their lives on because its truth will live and abide forever. Whereas the glory of man is going to wither and fade, the glory of the gospel won't. And if you're able to look back a few verses in, in 1 Peter, you'll see that in the verses leading up to this, Peter was basically summarizing the gospel message when he said, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ who was foreordained before the foundation of the world 
manifest in the last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And that message, that word, is what we stake our lives on. It's the basis for our faith and hope. Now, why is Peter saying all this about the Word of God? What, what is his point here? Well, this all is wrapped around this command in verse 22 that we love one another fervently. Uh, since these things are true about the Word of God, love one another fervently. And you'll notice in verse 22 that he says that they already have shown a sincere love for each other. But now he wants even more. He wants an overflow of love among the believers because of the truth of the Word of God, because it transforms, it makes you part of the same family, like Gabriel was saying last Sunday, um, we were going through the Lord's Prayer and he said, Our Father, you know, how can you say Our Father without having love for His other children? It makes us part of the same family. It gives us solid promises that will endure and are at the foundation of our faith. So, this should all produce a fervent love in us for each other. And so that being the case, here's what Peter says next over in chapter 2. He's continuing on with this thought. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So now he's giving us a list of things that we need to get rid of, and they all have to do with how we treat each other. Because you can't, you can't love one another fervently and at the same time be allowing malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking to have its way in our hearts. These are, these are behaviors that are obviously destructive, and they tear down something that God, a, a project that God is working on. Like he is in the middle of this building project, which we'll look at here in a few verses. He, he is trying to build something out of us. And the unfortunate truth is by allowing these one, two, three, four, five different uh, behaviors in our life, by allowing those, um, it we're we're kind of busily tearing down exactly what God is trying to build. It's destructive. You know, uh, Colleen has a has a project in our front flower bed, and it is called flowers, right? Typical. So she's growing flowers in this flower bed. And the other day, um, the the kids were out playing nicely, and uh, so after a bit, I went out to check on them, and here they had gotten a hose out, and they had a project of their own, which was somewhat destructive, and they were making mud pies in the flower bed, which they weren't actually pulling flowers out, but it definitely was not improving the overall health of the bed, the flower bed. And, and too often, that kind of thing is happening in in our churches. There's building up and tearing down going on at the same time, which should not be the case. So malice, deceit, envy, evil speaking, they're the spiritual termites of God's building. And they tear us down too. So maybe they're parasites also. 
And so lay those aside, Peter says, and in verse 2 he says, desire pure milk. And you might especially be thinking of those who are spiritually young, because he says, if you have tasted, there in verse 3. So you've had a taste, but you've got a long way to go yet. But there's a sense in which this is truth of true of all of us, because we have all tasted the goodness of God, and we really all have a long way to go yet. And so Peter says, keep thirsting for pure milk. And in the New King James it says, of the word, and other translations put it that way also, that, that, that's actually one Greek adjective, and it can be translated of the word, it can also be translated just spiritual. So some translations will say, desire pure spiritual milk, others will say, the pure milk of the word. Desire pure milk, either way. So you can grow. And all Christians, no matter how long they've been Christians, still need to grow. And you'll notice that, and this is not earth-shattering, that our desire for spiritual things is linked to our spiritual growth. Probably the, the best indicator of where you're going to be at, spiritually speaking, five years from now is, is how much of a desire for spiritual things you have in your heart now and throughout that time. Okay, so we've seen so far that because of the Word of God, we should be loving each other fervently. We need to be putting aside these spiritual termites. We need to long for spiritual food that causes growth. And next, we look at God's building project here, starting at verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, and you notice there the, the antonym for belief is disobedience. I think that's interesting. To you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So we see Jesus, the cornerstone. We know what the cornerstone is. The starting point of a building. He is chosen by God. He is precious and it's kind of interesting to see what Peter calls precious in his writings. Um, it, these aren't all the same Greek word here, but they all get translated the same way, in, at least in the New King James Version, to being precious. So in chapter 1 he says, Your faith is more precious than gold. And he also says, The blood of Jesus is precious. And then over in chapter 2, we see this cornerstone is precious. In fact, you see it three times here in short order. Precious. And then chapter 3, for wives, a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious in the sight of God. And then over in 2 Peter chapter 1, the promise is given to us through Jesus are exceedingly 
great and precious. And so uh, back to these verses here about our precious cornerstone. We see that he was rejected by men. Um, who were these men? Well, first we think of the religious leaders, of course, who were who rejected Jesus, but many others, really, uh, in Jesus' time and since then, throughout all history, many people have have seen this cornerstone and decided, no, I don't, I don't need that. I don't need that in my life. Not, not important to me. Not valuable to me. And that's, that's a terrible choice. Terrible mistake. John 3:19 says, "This is the condemnation." that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It reminds me of, of a story um, that happened a couple months ago back in, in South Carolina. A man threw away his lottery ticket and of course you can guess that it was actually a winning ticket because I wouldn't be telling the story otherwise it wouldn't be that interesting. But yeah, he, he, um, he compared the numbers, the numbers didn't match, and so he tossed it in the trash. And later that day, he realized that he'd been comparing with the previous day's numbers and uh, that, that day's drawing. And so he actually had one after all. And some of this thing that he had decided was not valuable to him at all, so it became very valuable. And he, I guess he went dumpster diving. He somehow retrieved it from the trash. Because uh, I think he maybe dumped it in the in the trash can, you know, like at the at the convenience store where he bought it. Anyway, um, he went back and and found it and won a hundred thousand dollars. But uh, Jesus is worth, of course, far more than that. And the terrible truth is that many many have rejected him. There are two outcomes we see here. For this encounter with the cornerstone, there's the outcome of blessing for those who believe, because they will not be put to shame. Their belief will not be embarrassing to them, because it is not misfounded. And in, in um, see, the first time we were looking at First Peter chapter one, we saw him describing this incorruptible inheritance waiting for us in heaven. Those who believe won't be put to shame, but for those who are disobedient, there's condemnation and stumbling and a downfall to which they were appointed, he says. And my take on that is that there is an appointed destiny for those who reject Jesus and another kind of destiny for those who believe. All right, so let's move on to verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Which we could not have found that light on our own. God called us. In verse 10, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. So I want to focus on, especially on verse 11 here for a bit. And he's making an appeal to them. I beg you, right? That's an appeal. I'm begging you 
as sojourners and pilgrims. He's appealing to them as pilgrims because, because Christians need to remember they're pilgrims. And when Christians forget that, they're going to struggle with abstaining from fleshly lusts, the, the, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, not of the Father, but of the world. As it says in 1 John 2, Christians who forget they don't belong to this world are going to have a hard time not loving it. And Peter says these, these fleshly lusts, they war against the soul. How, how important is it to you that your soul not be under siege? I mean, how important is your soul anyway? I mean, is it more important than your appendix? How about a kidney? You don't need two kidneys, do you? Uh, what about your left arm? Is it more important than your eye? One of your eyes. Both of your eyes. You know, uh, in Mark 8, Jesus says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And of course, you also remember Matthew 5, where he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. The truth is we should be willing to give up anything to preserve our soul, even life itself. And unfortunately, we don't always live that way. Um, you know, the, the truth is that we are in a war. As, as Christians, we are in a spiritual battle. But the more that we yield to the flesh, uh, the more desperate that battle, that battle is, is going to be. It, it is the opposite of putting on the armor of God. So th there are two reasons here, actually, to abstain from fleshly lust. One is because it, it puts your soul in danger, and we want to be healthy, growing Christians. The, the other reason is because of the effect that abstaining has all non-Christians, who Peter calls Gentiles. Spiritually speaking, we are Jews, they are Gentiles. Uh, those who abstain from fleshly lusts will display what Peter calls honorable conduct and good works. And so, when we do that, the non-Christians who are maybe initially tearing us down and mocking us and saying bad things about us, as they observe us longer, they are given an opportunity. And the opportunity is to say this. You know what? There's actually something going on there. There's something real. Um, there's something special about that group of people. And so that's an opportunity we give them when we live the way we should. Peter uh, makes a similar statement about the impact of our conduct in chapter 3 verse 1 where he says wives be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives so when Christians act like Jesus when they live the way they should as pilgrims and sojourners and abstaining from fleshly lust they draw people to God but when we don't when we don't behave like the way we should we rob opportunities we rob non-Christians of this opportunity to glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Now, there's no guarantee, of course, that they're going to respond, but they are given an opportunity by our good conduct, by our good works. What is this day of visitation he's talking about? It could refer to the second coming of Christ. And if so, it would mean that people who are non-Christians now have been so moved by our testimony that by the day in which Christ returns, they also are Christians. They also are glorifying God alongside us. Or it could mean that it could mean the day of visitation as in the day in which God comes and visits them on an individual basis. He, when he calls them, convicts them, and calls them to himself. And then if if they are um, if they are responsive, of course, they also join this body of, of people who are, are praising him. Praising him who called them out of darkness. All right, so that uh, that is all the way that has gotten us all the way up through verse 12, which is as far as we're going to go so far in our uh, passage. And I've got four lessons, four kind of takeaways that I picked out of out of these verses that I would like to uh, share with you. Um, the first one is is just that God. And the first two lessons are kind of building blocks for the next two. So the first one is that God called you into a spiritual house that has work to do. And I know it maybe sounds a little funny to talk about a house having work to do, but this is a living house. It's made up of living stones. And its function and purpose are, according to Peter, to offer up spiritual sacrifices in verse 5, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you, verse 9, and then what we just looked at in verse 12, showing the good works that, uh, that can cause others to also glorify God in the day of visitation. They may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's the role of the house, the spiritual house, is to be a light, to bring glory to God, and to show the rest of the world that God's way is best. And so, and I know I already said this um, back in our first study from First Peter, but I'll say it again, that you know, God did not call us just so that we could go to heaven. That is a big deal to him. Uh, he, you know, I don't want to downplay that aspect of it. He, you know, John 3.16, you know, so that we would not perish. He that believeth would not perish. Right? He loves you as an individual and wants you to be part of his kingdom. But the other huge part of this that we shouldn't forget is that he wants you to be part of something wonderful that he is accomplishing now on earth, which is this society of believers who are, who are um, showing the rest of the world what it looks like to live uh, in harmony with God, to live the way God wants us to live, the way he, he made us to live. And, and just um, how beneficial and how wonderful that is. It is a light to the Gentiles, and it brings glory to God and, and shows his goodness. So that's the role of a, of a spiritual house. It has a job. It has a purpose. And you were called into it, not just to be saved, but to also be part of this body with a mission. And then uh, the second point I want to share is that a, a strong spiritual house has got to be um, obsessed with its cornerstone. It is focused, fixated on the cornerstone because the cornerstone is what 
ties it all together. If the stones aren't aligned, you know, the building is going to be flawed. Ephesians 2.20 also calls, Paul calls Jesus the chief cornerstone. In verse 21 he says, And whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so a, a spiritual house finds its togetherness and growth in the cornerstone. And I think a church that is fixated on, obsessed with, you want to use that word, with its cornerstone, it, it looks like this. Um, the, the members of that church lift up and admire the example of Jesus as portrayed in the Gospels. The teachings of Jesus are taught and lived out and, and seen as being very important and we take them seriously. That's part of the Great Commission, isn't it? The name of Jesus is honored by this church's members because they realize that they, they represent Jesus and so their conduct can either bring honor to his name or dishonor. And then, of course, the brothers and sisters of Jesus are served and loved. And because Jesus said, as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. And so we are eager to serve and love each other. And then, of course, Jesus himself is precious to each individual stone in this building. They value him more than anything else they have going on in their busy little lives. That's what a strong church looks like it is. It is fixated on its cornerstone. And I want to be part of that. So those are the first two lessons. They're, they're kind of about this house that God is building. And then the next two are more have to do with us as individuals and our and our role in this building, our, our personal obligation. So the lesson number three is that um, each of us should make it a, a personal goal. We have to take this personally, this challenge to love each other fervently, to love our brothers and sisters fervently. That's what Peter commands in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 22. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. The same word that is translated fervently here is also used in Acts 12:5, where Peter was imprisoned by Herod, uh, who had just executed James, and the church was praying fervently for Peter. Just to give you a picture of the earnestness behind that word. So this love that we ought to have for each other is a huge part of, of um, both aligning ourselves with our cornerstone, because this is what he wants from us, right? This is what he, you know, he commands us, a new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's part of aligning ourselves with the cornerstone. It's part of doing what this spiritual house is intended to do. We're supposed to have this special level of love and care for each other. And so I think uh, one way to apply this is, is maybe just to ask ourselves the question, if I took this personally, if this is a personal priority of mine, love one another fervently, what would I be doing differently? Uh, would there be things that I would change? Would I be more disturbed by some of the attitudes I have? Would I have to repent of them? Um, would it bother me more if I had this kind of thing against somebody in our church, some dislike? How much dislike 
can you have before you're not loving someone fervently? Uh, would I be more careful about how I talk about my brothers and sisters? Would I be more interested in opportunities to serve them? Would I be more happy to see them succeed? Would I compliment them more? So these are just some things for us to think about as we uh, try to take this command and make it practical. And this command, it starts at the local church, and that should be our, our chief focus here as we think about how to apply and applies to our families also. The local church is who we interact with most and are most accountable to and have the most opportunity to live this out with. But this command also has a, has a non-local church context, and I want to recognize that. You know, there's, there's not a reason to say that Peter only meant this for brethren of the same congregation and you don't have to love other Christians. He might have had the local church kind of at the top of his mind when he was writing that. But this does apply to Christians who aren't members of our church, Christians who aren't Mennonites, Christians who aren't Americans, Christians who have left our church, Christians we've never met. This command applies to them too. Uh, the outworking of the command changes a bit to those who are outside of our church because there, there isn't the same level of interaction and opportunities or accountability. But the basic obligation, the basic command is still there, to love the brothers and sisters of Jesus fervently. The fourth takeaway from this lesson, and this is my last one, right? So I will conclude after this fourth in, in short order, is that we are responsible for our attitudes and affections. And of course, this also is a huge part of aligning ourselves with the cornerstone. That's what we want. The cornerstone is precious, and we as individuals want to align ourselves with it. And I'm impressed by how much responsibility Peter assigns to us for our attitudes and our affections or desires. You know, he says, get rid of these. Get rid of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And these are all either bad attitudes or the results of bad attitudes, really. And, you know, if I have a bad attitude, as much as I enjoy blaming it on people and the weather and Facebook and whatever, really at the end of the day, my bad attitude is my problem and not the other guy's. And he says also abstain from fleshly lust. And of course, people can help us tremendously in this kind of battle, right? And it can be very important to get others involved. But when it boils down to it at the end of the day, it is, it is our choice and we have to be the ones who say, this has got to stop. Now, none of these, I just want to be clear, none of these attitudes and affections, these changes can happen without the work of the Spirit, the empowering work of the Spirit in our lives. Uh, the third thing he says is, uh, be hungry for spiritual milk. Desire it. You know, you're not interested in spiritual things? Well, don't blame your church. It's, it's your problem. Well, it's, I guess it's really all of our problem, but, and we want to help you, but um, you do need to have that desire. You are going to have to decide this is important to me, and maybe you have to decide that, that I need to have this desire. I'm going to desire the desire, right? You need to be hungry and thirsty for spiritual things. 
desire it, Peter says. Fervently love the brethren, he says. You know, if you can, you just really can't put up with them, you can barely put up with them, you know, you're, you are responsible for that. And above all, hold your cornerstone precious. You know, this is the... You're going to have to be the one who, who makes Jesus the, the chief value, the, the most important thing you have going on in your life. And really, no one else can make him precious to you. So, those were kind of the four takeaways I have from this lesson. We, God has called us into a spiritual house that has work to do. And uh, we need to be obsessed with our cornerstone. We need to fervently love our brothers and sisters. And uh, a lot of that, aligning ourselves with our cornerstone is, is going to affect our attitudes, our affections, the attitudes we put up with, the affections that we cultivate. And uh, we want to be aligned with the cornerstone. We want to make sure that, that we are doing our part to contribute to this project, that we're not tearing it down, but we are aligning ourselves to the cornerstone and holding him precious. And may God help us to do all that. God bless you.